<laughs> we, we have we have the return of our most prolific guest on the True Crime Podcast. This is episode nine of his story of being incarcerated across five continents, being on death row twice, escaping from death row in Thailand. And we did do a series during the lockdown with David that had to be deleted. But I'm going to urge people, if they want to see this highly humorous, off-the-cuff, freestyling, stand-up kind of at-home comedy that we did um, about what was going on around the world. If you want to see, I think there's about seven or eight episodes of them, an hour long each. They're on David's channel. Yes, it's just called One to One because it's you and me really wandering off topic. I tell you what, you know, you might be wondering as you, I'll let you continue with your introduction in a minute, but why I'm wearing this. We can't talk about why people are wearing these things because on this channel, enough said. But... <laughs> but no, it's, it's to protect me from offensive remarks. Offensive remark protector. Actually... That is an offensive remark protector. It is. And, and from time to time, I might slip it back in place. But audio clarity <laughs> is what we aim for. But you'll see it come on at points where I feel I need protection. Hello, everyone. I'm back. And who am I? David McMillan. He might not be big and muscular and tattooed, but he's got the devil in his eyes. And let me just give a recap of where we are with David. Installment 8 finished with David in the throes of Hyperbad Prison. Hyderabad, yes. Hyderabad. Hyderabad. Another inmate had approached David with his lips sewn together as part of a hunger strike. He wanted... David to sew his own lips together and show solidarity in his hunger strike, which David declined. David was then summoned to a meeting with the prison superintendent. Not knowing what he was getting into, he attended the meeting and present at the meeting was his lordship, an ally of David's from the killing fields of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And his lordship was brought to the prison. A cake. And 30 armed men who could basically just wipe out the prison administration at any moment and the prison administration are kissing the rings. So, thanks uh, yes. for coming back on. It's great to be back here. You know, I've missed this. I mean, it's extraordinary that you moved the entire studio up to Mount St. Helens. <laughs> it's obviously a very safe place to be these days. And uh, I don't know how you found the staff to actually break it down brick by brick, but it's, apart from the odd volcanic rumble, it seems safe. Uh, and good be to be back here. And I should say to people who've just stumbled in on number nine, because number nine's a nice number, that um, I'm in a Pakistan prison because at uh, in my early 40s by then, for over 20 years smuggling across different continents, and I'd been uh, imprisoned in Bangkok, but I didn't like that because they were going to kill me with a machine gun. And I escaped and then fled to, um, well, through to Singapore and then to Balochistan, which is in Pakistan. And I was under the protection of my old friend. You refer to his lordship, Mir Jahan Magsi of the Magsi clan. And I'd actually met him back in the, like, Gee, 15 years earlier, crossing over into Afghanistan. 
And uh, that was when the, the Russians were playing a bit of mischief there. But they learned, didn't they, Sean, that uh, Russians they may be, but tribal badlands is not the place to be. They didn't learn from the British incursion in the previous century. That's true. We had uh, two great Afghan wars that didn't work out very well. Didn't they leave a few survivors and um, one head of the British came back um, after they'd all been wiped out? Talking about Yes, there the- was one, I think, who <laughs> crawled back. I mean, I must say, Sean, though, if I'd been the last survivor in, in any operation uh, and I'd crawled back, my, well, backers might be a little bit suspicious as to why I was alive at all. My story might be doubted. <laughs> and doubts are what uh, one has to keep about you at all times. So I uh, ended up um, re- retired again and rebuilt yet another life after having reconstructed about five of them. This time uh, back in London, a nice muse house, uh, slightly mad but irresistible girlfriend, Eloise, who knew nothing, nothing at all of uh, my adventures. They were just, she she described herself as too fatty squeak. I think she meant a mouse uh, to deal with anything. You know, she, she saw Eloise saw her, um, dropped into one of the flats unexpectedly, and I had about three passports, different names, same face, and she went to open it, and then she closed it again. Go ahead and look. I gambled. <laughs> oh no, I might see something that that would alarm me, and probably would, but still. Um, no, she, she knew nothing of that. And I'd um, returned, despite the, the retirement, uh, into uh, Pakistan, ended up in uh, some trouble there, um, fishing out one of Norjohn's uh, little nephews, uh, who'd ended up being, um, he, he was, some debt was owed. They're all smugglers. He's down on the Makran coast, uh, running off to Dubai. And the nephew was taken because of an unpaid debt. As is the way with kidnappings in that part of the world, um, if nothing, if whoever's invited you for the long dinner, as we'll call it, um, if they don't get satisfaction, they'll sell you on to somebody else who might be able to do better, and on and on. And little Iftikhar was um, about to be volunteered into, um, I think, an attack on Mazar al-Sharif up north, which was a bit like the way the Russians um, dealt with a lack of tanks and armaments in the Second World War against the Germans. The first wave were, um, well, prisoners, we'll call them. <laughs> yeah, if they weren't prisoners the day before that, they were now, and they just went out there um, uh, armed with nothing but a prayer book, I suppose. So he was he ended up um, safely enough. Uh, I bought him back uh, for a pretty good price. I got to go back for about $5,000, and I was um, pretending to be buying antiquities, uh, because there was um, uh, quite a bit of digging up, as you can imagine, uh, some uh, Gandhar and stuff. And the antiquities cost me more, but I, I left them uh, uh, over there. God knows what happened to them. 
Um, but found myself uh, in, my, in front of my old nemesis, Bill Shankman from the DEA, um, thrown back into um, a prison and facing um, a death penalty in the new anti-narcotics court, um, which is, ah, there's worse things, I suppose, but the worst part about it, the, the court really didn't operate, didn't exist. So... On top of that, over a dispute with how much bribe money should be paid in Karachi Central Jail, I was disappeared to Hyderabad, thrown into uh, the Bund Ward, the Lock Ward, and um, left there to rot. But I didn't mind it. You know, the, the solitary was a little hard to tell night from day, but um, I don't know. I, found, I think people in uh, the current climate will kind of understand that there are some benefits to being compelled to have time on your own. It's good for the soul. It, it is. And you get to kind of design the house you never built and all of that thing. Though I had some things to consider. You can imagine after um, a 20-year battle, I'm not really uh, uh, making money anymore, but just staying ahead and... and uh, paying off to keep out of uh, crises that come up. But the big break, and as we left it in uh, last episode, number eight on your channel, um, my old friend, Noor John, had turned up at the prison and all would be well. So if you want to see the previous episodes, go down in the description box below this video is a link to the previous episodes. And... Also, a link to David's channel on YouTube, which I urge you to subscribe at. Come on, let's get him up to 10,000 subs at least here soon. And also links to his books, yeah. Escape and Unforgiving Destiny. Yep, they're, they're around. <laughs> and um, a, a German version of Escape uh, will soon be about. I, I, I don't know. Anybody out there in Germany follow all this nonsense? Well, um. I think there are a few I hear from. So what to do next there? Um, I was still, it didn't absolutely solve the problem. Was there a file in the cake? Uh, no, it was one of those very gooey cakes that come from, in Pakistan, the, the, the bakeries have a section which are kind of uh, for weddings and, and um, really wedding services are the only big parties they they have in public. Um, it's very rare that um, people will throw a block party in, in Pakistan. And India to uh, a lesser degree, a bit more fun there. So weddings are the big thing. And they have the, the shops sell a lot of very sticky, sugar-heavy, uh, cream-rich, slightly rancid within a couple of days cakes. Mm. A bit like, uh, have you ever heard of a bonbonieri shop? I've not. Bonbonieri, people, uh, is an Italian idea where everything to do with um, christenings, weddings, and special occasion birthdays is sold. It's uh, little dolls, uh, sweets. I like going there just to be able to say, is this the Bonbonieri shop? <laughs> it's got a good ring to it, hasn't it? <laughs> like Anna Banana. Uh, yeah. Um but I was allowed freedom uh, of the city of Hyderabad jail, not the city itself, but it was like a city. It held about uh, two and a half thousand. So uh, I roamed about 
Now, as you mentioned before, um, Byron, who had been feeding me while I was um, locked up there, uh, he was the one who'd been on hunger strike. He was not the only one I found that had done that. The tradition is, um, <laughs> foolishly, I thought, well, you just don't eat the food they give you and that's it, but it's not. You, um, what goes along with that, you have to have a certain amount of beatings every day. And uh, the sewing of the lips, yeah. Uh, but I'll come to that in a minute. But um, the first bunch of people I met as I roamed about Hyderabad uh, was um, two big political leaders of a Sindhi nationalist party. Now, Sindh province is, um, is where Karachi is, and Karachi City has its own party, the MQM. But the nationalists kind of want an independent state of Sindh. As you know, when uh, India was broken up, um, lots of different groups, I mean, Sindh has its own language, Sindhi, um, wanted their independence. Now, these two guys had uh, were in on, well, most of the political party heads were in on murder charges. They found that was the only thing that um, would hold them in prison. They'd very rarely, very rarely be convicted of it. But as I've said to people over the years, a couple of important things to know about being arrested in India, Pakistan, is one, um, you'll be tortured for a confession. Now, that's grim, but um, it actually doesn't matter what you tell them. Providing you don't tell them anything that's true, um, confessing you know, horribly after a massive breakdown uh, don't do it on round one of the beatings, uh, but try and avoid the electricity, that's for sure. Um, you then say, all right, uh, this is the truth, and they'll note it down, but it can never be used in a courtroom. And no uh, court there will accept it. And all the proceedings are in English. Um, that is a, a great and useful legacy, um, in, it, it sounds. It, I know it's very unpopular to say anything good might have come out of a colonial era, but in the perception of uh, the people there, they regard that the tradition of the courts was relatively honest. The British magistrates who ran them, were they fair? I'm sure not as fair as their um, wistful memories of the old people remember. But I suppose on a dull day, a magistrate might give a poor man a bit of justice <laughs> just to make himself feel better or something to talk about to Memsab when he got home while he was beating the servants. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so there was the idea that the, the court should be uh, reasonably honest. Um, but they held these two uh, big nationalist leaders and there was a limit to what they could do to torment them. The usual practice was to disappear them. They would go to um, holding cells or dungeons ar around the major cities. And um, these two guys, there was kind of a Napoleonic little one with dark hair and a kind of big beefy one. I think he was the sergeant of, at arms of, of the nationalists. They told me that when they were taken in and disappeared, um, their form of uh, breaking them down was to swaddle them from head to toe 
in heavy bandages, clothing, a hood, um, which had no eye holes, nothing like that, heavy mittens, not with even fingers in them, like oven gloves, and um, loads of wrappings around the feet, and then in the solitary cell by themselves, not together. Like cook them alive, basically. Kind of, yeah. It must have been kind of cozy in there, yeah, for sure. But um, it, it was a, a curious thing to meet them in the prison because they were so highly respected. Um, around where I I was living, uh, in the a chair, one morning the chairs were brought, a um, little table was set up, and then they were ushered in, followed by a small retinue of people, and a couple of um, uh, their badashi, the servants, were carrying food for me. Introduced themselves, David, here's some food. We've heard about you from uh, Amir Nurjan that you're here. No, Nurjan's Baluchi, but a nationalist and and well-respected for the great September 30 massacre, uh, when over 100 people were killed in the street. Uh, a matter of pride? Well, huh. uh, perhaps um, fear and respect seem to go hand in hand there. But when I got to know them, um, the little one told me that while they were swaddled up one night, uh, a guard had taken pity on them. And it was in the middle of the night, so nobody was around. He led them out from their cells. He didn't dare take everything off to so they could breathe the air, but just lifted the cowling over their faces so they could get a sense of the, the, the night. And the little guy said, well, he took off the bandages around my feet. And so my bare feet could, he led us over to where there was some grass. And he said he could feel every blade of that grass, every droplet of moisture, the, the aroma of the night earth as it, you know, separated the the the, the smell uh, rising from the ground. Now this was five years earlier, but he remembered um, virtually every sensation across his feet uh, that that had. So it gave me some idea of what um, uh, the extremes of sensory deprivation were like. As I've said before. Uh, if you're foolish enough to ask yourself a question, oh, and your viewers might be wondering, what would it be like if I was arrested here? Or what would it be like if I was imprisoned in, in a foreign country? And people watch things like Locked Up Abroad, Banked Up Abroad to get some idea of that. But I think you need the texture, the smell, and uh, the fear to go with it. And Hyderabad also had a, a quite a mixture of other bits of uh, driftwood that came in. Um, there, somebody in the cell near me was a notorious forger, and he he even had uh, restrictions on the, on what he could be served to eat. You know, he was not allowed to have boiled potatoes or potatoes of any kind. Why? Uh, I know, I asked myself that. He, if given a potato, would cut it in half and with a blade etch out the facsimile of 
a rubber stamp, an official rubber stamp. Get some ink from somewhere and then work, get his own bail papers. And that's the second lesson about uh, that part of the world. Everyone, no matter how grave the crime, must be given bail after two years. Uh, it became down through a series of uh, higher court challenges when cases were going on just forever, you know, up to 20 years and uh, nothing ever happening with them. Um, I suppose part of the reason nothing ever happened with them was each side were killing their own witnesses. Um, that does tend to slow the proceedings a bit. So um, then uh, I was in a dormitory there in Hyderabad where I got to meet some sort of country folk, uh, two or three groups of them in for honor killings, which if you don't know what, there's no honor whatsoever uh, connected with it. Conceivably, family embarrassment as a daughter is accused or a wife is accused of doing something inappropriate, like what? Looking, <laughs> seeing, being looked at, something like that. Uh, I mean, the, the crazy thing is nothing necessarily would ever form the basis for the, the, the offended family's anguish. Uh, okay, if the, the girl was going to run off with a, um, um, and have a love marriage, it's a, that's a set expression. Was it a love marriage? Like, you know, this is a rarity, not the arranged marriages. Um, now, these hillbillies were, um, uh, they'd killed the, the daughter in the family. Uh, and the guy I spoke to had killed his sister. And I asked him if he felt uh, bad about that. And, yeah, he came to think it wasn't such a good idea. But, um, well, <laughs> uh, not... Uh, really country imbeciles uh, by comparison with the, this is their own perception. I don't mean the country people were imbeciles, but um, e even within their own groups, they were considered that. Um, but the most interesting people at Hyderabad were a bunch of Russians I found there. Now, the design of the place was um, peculiar. It was mostly... A huge grounds and kind of nice, some gardens, parks within the jail. Strange. You can Google it up and look at the aerial shots of it at Hyderabad. Uh, don't get it confused with the Hyderabad in India, but the, the Pakistan one. And I don't know whether it's visible on it, but um, it kind of had Greek columns and uh, long curb patio things. Now, amongst uh, all of that, were all these European faces. And uh, my guide said, no, they're the Russians, meet them. And uh, you might wonder why um, a bunch of Russians, I think there was uh, six there at the time, uh, six left out of a group of 10. They'd been in for uh, about nine years. Um, their leader was uh, Andres, and he was... Uh, this was back in the Soviet era before Glasnost and the wall coming down and all of that. So I'm guessing, uh, and I found out to be true, that to be um, a Russian street 
gang back in the Soviet era was a pretty tough calling. You had to be able to hold your ground. So um, they, the, the gang, there were about 12 of them in Moscow. They all got into trouble, sent off to prisons, but they were so bad when left together, they were broken into two groups. Um, one sent off to, um, I think it was Chem 128. This is part of the Russian um, prison system, which has uh, whole cities which are devoted to nothing but prisons. They're sure, they're grim and vicious, but they have their own kind of social life. They have a women's prison attached to it. Some of the inmates are, uh, are married to the women there, and they have visiting days and all of that. Anyway, Andreas found himself with six of his compatriots in Chem 128, I think it was. No, Prem 128. Um, and he tried lots of things in there to um, bring the gang back together, but nothing worked. So he executed quite an interesting plan. Uh, Andreas and the boys there escaped from that prison. And did they flee into the hinterlands of Siberia? No. That would be probably certain death uh, from exposure or many other things. After all, that's why they're in Siberia. But they went to the airport and hijacked a commercial Tupolev 128, I think it was. Did they flee the country then? No, no, no. Not for a tough Moscow street gang. He demanded that the plane fly to another prison city and exchange passengers for the rest of his gang. Yeah. No way. Now, this... Wow. I've often wanted to, to write that story because of... Um, as their numbers dwindled over the years, because you can imagine the authorities were not readily going to hand over uh, prisoners out of a, a jail in exchange for the lives of um, it, you know, passengers on a plane. Well, yes. They changed their mind after um, the negotiator who came on board was... Um, <clears throat> the, the first lot were killed... And then the next negotiator announced that uh, through hand signals through the aircraft that they should go ahead. Something wrong with the radios. It wasn't entirely that. The negotiator was dead. And they were moving his uh, arms and face around like last weekend, my weekend at Bernie's, um, keeping him alive. And there's lots more to that. But Oh, please tell us the lots more. <laughs> <laughs> well, they... Um, Managed to get off the ground um, after um, leaving a small amount of carnage, and but keeping enough passengers on board. Um, have you ever been on a, a Russian flight? No. Mm. Well, um, I, I suppose this might be something that uh, one could take on it, really. <laughs> Because the 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 splatter from the uh, onboard um, <laughs> what, what snacks uh, it's usually a bucket with oranges on it, and the seatbelts don't work. Uh, the passengers are a hardy bunch anyway. They first were going to fly to uh, Gaddafi's Libya, but that turned out to be well, they were unwelcome. Um, after all, he was a bit friendly with the Russians, as you recall. So they 
uh, flew to uh, General Zia al-Haq, Pakistan. He was um, a general, as it sounds, and he'd taken over the government by um, putting the Prime Minister, Benazir Bhutto's dad, on trial for you know one of the made-up murders or somebody's death and actually executing him. That was unusual. Um, he was hanged. Um, now, Zia, uh, the general, didn't like the Americans, but did some business with him. Didn't like the Russians because uh, he was on the other Afghan side, not wanting the Russians around. So the uh, Moscow Street Gang and Dres thought that was the place to go, yeah, and the one place in the world. They There was a little confusion with the two Hyderabads, as you can imagine. <laughs> and they touched down there because Hyderabad, and it is today, remains so, is the Stansted of um, Pakistan airports. That is, the place that hijacked planes go to land. Um, and you will have noticed that uh, all planes with trouble get diverted to Stansted. That's because they've got uh, a crew ready to deal with all of that who live there, uh, waiting for trouble. Um, I would say to any hijacker, take the train. But if you do find yourself having to choose between airports, try to avoid Stansford, but you won't be able to. <clears throat> anyway, um, in fact, when, when the plane landed, Andreas demanded proof that he was in the right Hyderabad. And yet from... The Pakistan side, this was quite, you know, something to break the monotony of a, a long hot summer. The um, the the one who first went on board was um, a very senior uh, inter services intelligence, the the CIA kind of spook, and and another um, big chief. But they were in civilian clothes or shalwar kameez, and. Um, they just didn't have the uniform, so Andreas didn't really believe him. And then he had a little Moscow street idea. Show me your cigarettes. You know, a man's uh, cigarette packet will identify where he's from. Unfortunately, as I said, these were very high up people, all imported Dunhill. Um, anyway, that was settled. So what to do with them? Okay, sentence them to death. <laughs> yes, but no, but yes, and the the general commuted that to life, and then they dragged on in the courts, um, and uh, they wore out their welcome in um, Karachi by getting into fights with just about everybody. They stood their ground; these Russians, they they wouldn't pay, or they didn't have any money, um, so the only option was to fight. During the previous years, they'd killed. Um, 16 other inmates, uh, f four guards. Uh, and it really surprised me that they were still alive. You know, in, uh, you know, in, we're all civilized in the West, but if a prisoner kills guards, he's not likely to live, is he? He will meet with an accident. Uh, another inmate will be, um, elevated in some way uh, by getting rid of him. It's not likely he'd survive, but to kill four of them. Threw one of them off a building that they'd uh, climbed up to. Now, they'd been on hunger strikes, and a lot of them bore the uh, the telltale marks um, 
of the scars on the upper lip. Uh, you know what? I never asked. I meant to. What? Oh, yes, it was. They used cotton, if you're wondering. There was no cat gut or surgical uh, suture material. Um, so they must have got infected. What? Hmm. Best not to have a moustache for that. Um, but they would, um, to try and compel them, they would just tear away, the guards would hold them down and tear away those stitches and force feed them with a device they had made up. It was a steel contraption which had a kind of a, a, um, allowed a tube down there, uh, but the, the steel thing held your jaw open so the tube could get down inside. Now, um, as I was listening to Andreas recount the little gang's history, uh, I did notice that um, he had gaps in his teeth where would have been his um, first and second molar, top, bottom, on both sides. And that was because when the steel device uh, was shoved in his mouth, rather than take that, he crushed his own teeth into the steel, shattering them, and sealed it off from the rubber tube. Well, that did impress his captors somewhat, and they ended up with at least their own little patch uh, in the prison. But still, uh, Sean, we won't shilly-shally in uh, Hyderabad prison any longer. I'm gripped by all this. Because uh, I had to um, bid them a fond uh, farewell and get back to the court, which I did. My judge welcomed me back because it was he who, from his side, apart from Norjohn who'd done the actual magic, um, had uh, brought me, uh, and he really pressed the Karachi prison as to where I'd been taken. He threatened the um, superintendent, the equivalent of head warder or governor, uh, with being imprisoned for contempt unless I was produced and actually got him down to the courtroom. So, um, so produced I was. Um, but Karachi Central Jail, and, and I had a brief hearing, you know, lots of courtesies with the judge. I got rid of my old lawyer, Zahor Baruch, because I'd hired him, by the way, because uh, people might remember I'd met him in the prison. He'd been uh, <laughs> FIR'd. FIR is first incident, first incident report. It's something you go to a police station and buy, along with other treats. Um, you can get um, that a case registered against somebody and they go and get arrested and then they have to be back. It's, it's a way of annoying somebody else. And the many lawyers were in the prison. And Zohor Baluch was one of them, um, a bit of a bad reputation, but I wasn't too fussy then. I, I told him he, uh, I wasn't going to uh, pay him anything much in advance, a few thousand but he wasn't really get. He was trying to cheat too much, so I switched to um, Rana Shamim, and I mentioned his name because he's now a judge in um, the High Court in in Pakistan. He's come along in the world, but my judge was, you know, perfectly. There was nothing against me. You might recall that I was there because of the crazed babblings of the great um, failed boxer from Liverpool, Billy Green who, when in trouble, having done a, a drug run that he was supposed to find couriers for out of greed and to build up a little 
family palace in the Philippines with his wonderful wife, had landed himself in trouble, and the best way out of trouble is to get me into it. So I was tangled with him. I couldn't do much about him because he'd let it be known that if he disappeared, it would be my doing. If he slipped on a bar of soap in the, in the shower there in the prison, that would be his doing. So um, I, I had the court case continue, um, but not from Karachi Central. I went to a different prison, Landy. Um, Before that prison then, did you interact with the Russians? Yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, it's always been, um, they were a little out of date, I thought, but um, we exchanged contacts, and but they didn't really have uh, any <laughs> or care of Prem 128, you know, uh, uh, addresses or anything. But um, oddly enough, our paths would cross again, as, as fate would happen. And Andreas was um, uh, transferred back to uh, Karachi to um, be sent back. Oh, his life sentence there it was all reduced to 10 years. They were getting to release. Um, the Russians were going to come and pick them up. Um, they were even taken to the airport once. But uh, now we had arranged to... Um, have let the airport officials have them get onto any uh, journey of their choice rather than go back to Siberia. But we couldn't get him a passport. I was trying to get a camera in, but I kind of had my hands full with my own case. And then I went over to the, this other prison. But um, So you were helping them then? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, why not? I mean, they'd uh, proved their mettle. And not only that, I hadn't done much in uh, Russia, and I thought these guys are going to be somewhere one day. You know, this great Soviet bloc won't last forever; nothing ever does. And um, it might be good to have some contacts there that um, could bite through a steel device, <laughs> um, because I had no doubts about that. Um, the thing with business in Russia. Uh, in their, um, certainly in the old days and in, and, and much so um, since uh, things opened up, say, well, we'll call it the Putin era, um, the, the distinguishing thing between the state and crooks is a pretty thin line. And a lot of the old um, uh, KGB network became owners of things and, you know, all the oil people you've heard of had connections there. Um, but in the there was kind of what you'd say a, a big gulf between the businessman crooks and and the street ones, but they liked to keep their honor and keep in touch with each other. So I thought my way in was probably safer from the street up than from the big people down. I couldn't fight the people from the top down. I mean, I, I've I've. I know people in London today who are still fighting over money put into um, Russian oil deals, and they have cases in London that comes to comes to nothing. The civil courts, and it wouldn't matter if it came to something anyway; it's unenforceable. This is the the top down strategy of of the underworld. If you imagine we wanted to go into uh, not that we would, but into cocaine in South America, you, you'd think, well, go in at the top, you know, with the, with the big guys. But that's not really 
the smart move. You're not at the soft underbelly of the workings of the machine. If if you're back down at um, you know, my my most happy, that is uh, peaceful and annoying uh, South American uh, contact was a kind of slightly um, uh, what would you call her a society hostess really. Um, she she held parties and had a lot of friends, but she was also a distributor of the coke in in Cali, between dealer to dealer within there. So dealers would come and and buy a kilo and then break it up and be sold in that area. Now that's the kind of person you want. You don't want people who can start talking about international things. They want to know your business, who's flying. They'll find out who you meet at your hotel. They'll get in their their hooks in, and. And they will also, you know, oh, where do you come from? London. Oh, well, uh, just a minute. Uh, this week, 31,525 pounds a kilo, if I'm not wrong. <laughs> and they're not wrong. <laughs> so uh, they want you to be buddy, Sean. Yeah, they, 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 if you're doing something and foolish enough to tell them the slightest thing about it, um, they'll say, well, you've got five kilos going back. Throw in another kilo of mine, will you? It won't fit. Oh, we've got something for you. They'll put the whole six in there. And suddenly you realize you're not working for yourself anymore. I mean, if you say, well, I'll take your kilo back and I'll give it to you in London. There we are. Everybody happy? Yeah, well, why don't you sell it? Oh, I don't have it. Yeah, well, we do. So you call these people, they'll buy it. I, it's lost. It's all gone. But if you're, you know, I think... A, Many, many years ago in the depths of despair in Bangkok when I was uh, facing execution and I just spent a a decade in an Australian prison and life was a wreck, Um, a complete scallywag conman from Boston said to me a bit of advice I, I never really understood at first. David, if you want to free yourself, you have to no matter how foreign and alien it seems to you, you have to love the people in some way. It didn't mean anything to me then, but it, I translated it as to understand, at least, uh, appreciate the world as it is on the ground. And and like I say with the society hostess in, in Cali, hers was a world where I could roam around and and not be under threat, not become a a manipulated target. And if we go across the other part of the world, uh, the same sort of applies in a much more complex way in India, Pakistan. So um, uh, I kept the Russian uh, contacts, but um, with my own case, um, brought and it was coming to a conclusion. The great Billy Green was going to... uh, plead guilty and would have had a guarantee of no more than uh, about four years. Um, and this was for five kilos of heroin, so you know he was doing quite well, really. Um, he, would, um, he would take my lawyer, so I had him heavily under control. I would be found not guilty. Um, a policeman was the investigating officer, not the... Uh, ugly big boss, um, Babush, Ahmed Babush, my torturer. Um, he wasn't, he was too high up to be involved, but um, 
um, <laughs> we had a real struggle finding, um, um, when I say an honest policeman, one that wasn't so blatantly corrupt that he'd, uh, he'd sound honest. And when he was convinced to be asked the question, is this Macmillan wanted in Thailand for anything? Uh, uh, he only had to say, not that I know of. He was trembling when he had to give that in court. But it was quite good. Um, the judge thought, hmm, he knows otherwise, but um, at, at least he's relatively honest. When he's, all the other liars I have in this court sailed through it like they're picking up an Academy Award. I'd like to thank all the little people. The lies I tell here today are the best I've ever had. Um, so, um, but that wouldn't, I, I, I spent about... Um, three, perhaps four months at, at Landy Prison. When I was thrown in there, the prison uh, boss there had big ambitions. Again, 25,000 US. I don't know what it is, Sean. They always come up with the same number. <laughs> They've never had it, never seen it, don't know what it looks like, but they like it. So I was uh, given kind of bad treatment when I, um, I sort of bought my way up a little bit from, from the bottom, got a court order that he couldn't argue with because I'd heard he was extremely ruthless, this um, prison boss. He got the offcasts of the great Karachi Central Jail, which had all the celebrities. Landy had nobodies, really, and had a very small um, B class for the... Um, these are the guys with uh, their own servants and uh, their own guard and so on. So it was a, quite a small section. And I was there with um, an Air Force captain on a charge of, um, I think, two and a half tons of hashish going into Canada, uh, some brown heroin as well. can't remember the rest. Was he innocent? Eh, who cares? But uh, he certainly was naive in the business. Um, he'd had some, uh, without a doubt, he'd had some Canadian connections. But as... Uh, as cellmates go, he was quite good. There was a, um, a Christian tax collector in our little enclave. Um, and he was, um, had been accused of corruption. He was in there. So it was a very kind of peaceful little spot compared to Hyderabad dungeon. Uh, it was fine. Um, we had our cooks. And I'd walk around the prison kind of having a, a look about. There was nobody much there. But I did see, I spied through a window, and uh, my little minions, uh, the people who do my shopping and so on, would, um, now bear in mind, I, I'm going to, just to get the picture clear, I'm in a jail, but I'm going to court. I'm also B class, which is the upper class of the, uh, not a lesser, A is only for the political cases. Um, and a disadvantage. But the B class, you have no handcuffs when you get taken to court. Uh, you get your own van, and you pay the driver, of course. And you can wander around the courtroom, go to the shops across the way, send your guard, for that matter, if you're a bit busy. I usually give him a list, and he'd wander over. Um, so, and I think I've mentioned to you before, what would be the disadvantage of me just melting into the crowd there. Oh, wait a minute. No, I'd have to get somebody to at least pick me up from the courtroom and drive off with them. Would that be good? No, no, no. I would effectively be imprisoning myself with the people who pick me up. So 
that I wanted an acquittal. I wanted to be a free man. I wanted to be able to walk the streets of Karachi. So I held out for for the case. Um, but the, there was another Englishman in, in the jail, and his name was also David. He was a Londoner and uh, had been a, a diamond dealer before getting somehow tangled up in a, a case that involved a couple of tons of hashish um, that had a long history. Uh, some London villains had invested uh, some of their spare cash in uh, trying to organize um, a pretty big hash shipment from there. Um, it had become, well, <laughs> they they hadn't learnt what viewers here should have learnt by now. You have to be Johnny on the spot. You have to be on the ground. You have to take your, your money there. They'd send money there. And like throwing money out of an open aeroplane door, it rains down on the lucky beneficiaries. And they say, when the wind called, why isn't my hashish ready? What? Everything's ready. Just come. And, of course, when they get there, there's nothing done because they should have showed up. <laughs> and paid for themselves. So this David, the diamond dealer, was apparently there. And my spies also told me that he was in the, the clutches of, um, um, uh, yeah, uh, oh, yeah, I keep thinking was Zahu Baluch, but he was uh, Akbar Shah, that was his name, yeah. He um, was a very well-known um, hashish uh, smuggler or arranger of deals. Um, but he was a, an inveterate gambler, sad to say. And Akbar Shah could organize, should you want it, shipping containers of hashish to come out of Pakistan. He could arrange, should you so choose to do it, um, buyers in Amsterdam, transport across Europe. He could do lots of things. But if there was a deal to be done uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning, you couldn't give uh, Akbar Shah the half million the night before. He would leave the hotel room, go down to a casino, gone. So uh, um, he'd got him, Akbar, uh, um, this David the Diamond Dealer had been sent by the uh, London villains to be the man on the ground. Why they would send a man with no experience of uh, any of this is beyond me. But poor David lapped it up. He was quite impressed with the uh, London villains. And, admittedly, in their robbing days, this particular group, and I, I won't name them, a few are still alive, um, they were pretty good. They'd get um, uh, big loaders and lifters and pick up security vans off the ground and take them away to play their merriment with them. Uh, they almost couldn't lose a trial. They had juries fixed up. They had uh, um, Henry Miller, the great uh, fixer of uh, trials back in the 70s um, and 80s. So Henry, oh, not a bad lawyer, retired now. Um, good lawyer, really, but he had just uh, a way of bringing people together, shall I say that. <laughs> and um, uh, acquittals would follow. He got himself a good name. I actually used him for, uh, well, he offered his services to me for the, the extradition case that Thailand 
launched upon me a couple of years ago when they wanted to get me back. Anyway, I heard of this. Uh, uh, the this David was stuck in a room with Akbar and being slowly leached. I heard that his family were sending money, and it was it was bad. Mm. So um, he'd been there for months. I invited him for a Sunday lunch. Um, sent the servants around to get him. He came into our little uh, walled enclave, and I realized he couldn't tell out of the three of us, the Air Force captain, the Christian tax collector, and myself, who was the English guy. Because I'd so become part of that world. I was wearing a white shalwa kameez, and uh, I think I'd grown a mustache. Um <laughs> which is not always a good idea to blend in too closely. I had a perfectly genuine fake passport challenged at an airport once at KLM by a guy who saw that moustache and said, this is a Pakistani because I had a suntan as well, mm -hmm. um, and started peeling away at the thing. Yes. Mm, that's a, it wasn't a very good passport. If I may demonstrate, you do not want a passport that when... Mm, Somebody in an official position starts peeling away the top layer, <laughs> and your face is there. That doesn't happen to passports normally. You need protection stronger than that. <laughs> yeah. But that was something else. It was a minor tragedy. <clears throat> so David couldn't tell who his host was. And when I came up to him and said, Hello, David. Most welcome to our humble little Sunday kitchen here. Just to hear an English voice. He couldn't speak. He was choked with emotion and then hugged me. I suppose Londoner to Londoner or whatever I was at the time. Um, he had been away from anything that was familiar for so long. He'd been having to deal with things. I'd forgotten because I was kind of used to it how, um, you know, you always hear, and you've had probably many people in this seat saying how um, difficult it is when they're in some foreign place, um, the stress of being able to do I could understand why he, he got all choked up. But I said, no, come over and sit down. Gin and tonic? Mm. Um, you know, uh, you're safe here. You know, you know, be yourself. Well, I heard his story. Um, it was certainly worth a lunch. Um, he'd arrived, he'd been taken to a warehouse, a sheet had been lifted under which supposedly the two tons of hash was. Oh, no, I can hear footsteps outside. <laughs> Remind you of something? Oxford Street on a shell game? Yeah. Uh, whether there was any hash, who knows? And where had he been staying? Some discreet guest house, the, the apartment of a friend? No, 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 no. At the Hyatt. Hotel. Now, in Karachi, there's about three meh, nominally five-star hotels, whether any of them are. <laughs> but uh, that was definitely, it, it had the atmosphere, all of those. If you go to the lobby, there are so many spies of invested interests, and it looks like Rick's Cafe Americaine in Casablanca. There's so many people with something to sell or trade or buy or use you for. So it was little wonder that um, <clears throat> half a dozen competing Pakistan agencies 
were uh, all over him like a rash. Um, but that was not enough to get him arrested. Uh, something else, some unseen hand had, because normally it's just the, the Western mug that goes in a thing like this, or, or maybe some driver or something like that. But for the Akbar as well to be dragged in, and they're all facing trial. And, of course, David's asked me, you know, should I sell the family home? Um, Akbar says, I need 20000 now. It's got to be here in a couple of weeks. Look, and I repeated those things. You get bail in two years. Take your time. These cases never end. They go on forever. You know, I mentioned that, that banker who was in at Karachi, I think, at another time. He never wanted his case to ever end. He wanted it to last until he did. He wanted his deathbed to be in the palatial house he'd built within Karachi Central Jail with its air conditioning and satellite dishes and, and comforts. David, I said, don't do it. Just don't do anything. And look, I know I told him somebody is bound to come along and say, don't trust Akbar Shah, but use your own judgment. This is his record. Um, Look at anybody's situation. It's his country. He will take care of himself first. Just take it easy. Relax. More beans. <laughs> Always like dull. Don't know. It's simple. But it's good. <laughs> Liked it ever since uh, first isolation block in uh, <laughs> in Karachi Central. So, um, did he take my advice? You're wondering. No, 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 no. He didn't. He went back and and, and kind of panicked, um, but and then started um, actually talking about other um, businesses that we might do. Said, Look, one thing at a time. We're here now. This is our business. Met some of the other people there. Um, a couple of shoe walkers. Those are the people with um, who we take. Uh, now, you wouldn't think it would be very profitable, would you, to take um, a kilo and a half in each shoe. That makes it a very heavy shoe. I mean, they're a bit Gary Glitter by the time they start to hold a, a kilo and a half. <laughs> Shuffle through there. There was one, one there. He, this guy used to be a, a beachcomber in the Caribbean. He used to pick up about a kilo a year or a kilo and a half, just like driftwood coming to shore on the islands there. The currents would take spilled cargo from the Caribbean, South America, uh, Florida uh, route, bits that had fallen over, been uh, you know, thrown over once the authorities approached. But it would drift up on shore. I mean, that you can imagine that would be, be a nice holiday, wouldn't it? Viewers uh, living on a Caribbean island, combing the beaches, stumbling across little bricks of decorative driftwood, I mean. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> they got minds. I mean, what are they thinking, these people? Um, so uh, I went to uh, my trial, and it was a very nice day when I was acquitted. Judge saying there wasn't a shred of evidence against me, and I am free to go. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. I am free to go. Eh, but the way it works, and it works this way here too. You can be acquitted. You actually go back to the prison to get released from there once the, the prison's hold papers arrived. The release papers arrived, but I had to get... <clears throat> oh, yes. That had, 
I'd been double charged with the same thing, and the same drug case was in the, the anti-narcotics court and the customs court. I was acquitted from the customs court, but the anti-narcotics court case would never end. And that's not <laughs> what I didn't really want. Um, I couldn't get there because there was no court, so I had to get bail. Now, for a foreigner to get bail in uh, Pakistan in a, a death penalty case is not a snap. But I, uh, oh, and here's another thing. It's, um, you have to have local guarantors to put up their house. They want property from a local man. And the local man's only going to do it if the money he's given is greater than, than he could lose. Here's the problem. How, do, and this is the essence, the, the, the classic problem there and dealing everywhere in that part of the world. If I give, if I send somebody with the money and they give it to the man, it won't happen. Why should he? He's got the money. You can't, when, when somebody, somebody virtually have to go there, buy a house and then become a resident. I mean, that was all too cons time consuming. And who was my first audience to this discussion? It was the Air Force captain. He said, I know exactly what you mean. You can't, you can't give the money to anybody because anybody who would take the money and not simply volunteer it, you couldn't trust. I'll do it for you, he said. So when I get released, he arranged his own bail. Now, what are the odds? What are the odds that somebody that you've met in a prison is, I mean, we got on well, um, will say, I will put up, I forget what it was, twenty, the equivalent of about $20,000 um, in property, uh, and I will have you released on it, and you're a, a, a foreign devil. I will come to you, Sean, and you're in the middle of uh, New Delhi or something, and I'll, I'll put my, and, and you've met, but the odds are remote, no? Sounds too good to be true. When it's too good to be true, when it's ridiculously too good to be true, sometimes it is, and it was, and he did. Good grief, wow. And I had my bail papers from the, um, uh, from it was the high court that had issued them, my release was sent to uh, Landy Prison, and nothing happened. What papers, says Mr. $25,000, the, the prison governor. Don't know anything about them. Uh, he'd said to, the guard from up there came back and told me, he's saying, unless you give him uh, this amount of money, you won't go anywhere. I was even brought, just to tease me, I was brought up the front, front with all the people being released that night. It happens about 6 o'clock. And they're all going, going. I'm the last one, sitting around there kicking my heels, not going anywhere. Now, here's the ingeniousness of local knowledge. The Air Force captain knew perfectly well that uh, that prison governor would never let me go, ordinarily, uh, unless a fair amount of money was paid over. So. What And if he came down, because they knew each other, of course, he'd been in there a year, this Air Force captain, the prison governor knew him backwards, he'd smell money. Oh, you want the foreigner? Well, it's going to cost you 25. <laughs> and what to do? So, who would you send, Sean? Who would be best? That was a tricky one, isn't it? Nah. 
Um, to avoid paying money to him, mm. who would you send? Someone who had something on him? Um, yes, but time-consuming, and inevitably the somebody who had something on him would want more, to almost the same amount of money that uh, was in question. No, Air Force captain sent somebody we actually knew from. It was a, a priest. A priest? Uh, imam who was reasonably enough respected, but also to talk to, kind of bored and indifferent. He turned up and said to the uh, the prison boss, I'm here for, uh, I can't even remember what name I was under, Dylan, I think. Dylan? Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm here for David anyway. Um, David he, Dylan. Yeah, he's, uh, he, he's got bail. Yeah, well, it'll cost you some money. The, the priest said, huh. Well, I'll send the car away because uh, I'm not paying anything. Uh, nothing to do. I don't care whether I get him or not. He's got no family here. You can keep him forever. And now the, he, the, the prison boss knows he's going to get in trouble in the courts for not enforcing this order to some extent, only as much as he just to have to avoid being summoned a few times. So the priest then says, look, give the guard 500 rupees and and bring him over. Now it's almost like an insult. It's like five pounds. That this is how low this guy was, this prison boss. He takes the 500, puts it in his pocket, slaps his sergeant at arms around. All right, let, let the priest have the bastard. And, and so I was out. Uh, what finally. was going through your head when you uh, heard that that was accepted, that deal? Um, well, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, because I wasn't in, you know, I'd left my phone back This there. was all at the behest of the Air Force guy. He, yeah, he yeah, organized he, he, he did. So you were told after you were released then, mm. the deal. And were you impressed? And I was. I was in the back of a um, little air-conditioned rust bucket. They might be crappy cars, but the air-conditioning usually works. He said, uh, the priest said, I was touch and go the day. And he, uh, I, I wasn't going to... Uh, uh, I took several steps uh, away back to the car, but um, I said, where's the Air Force guy? Um, oh, he's, he's waiting for you, you know, somewhere else, you know. Uh, but he thought you might want <clears throat> a kind of uh, <clears throat> night's rest after all of this first, just see him tomorrow, <clears throat> which, um, which I would because um, – did I? Do you recall Robbie the Scot? Which episode was that? Well, he was a Scottish um, deal broker who found himself in Pakistan, and we first met. Though I'd followed, uh, uh, I'd heard of his arrest. He was involved in arranging um, finance for the Guada oil pipeline from um, Guada Port, which is in along the coastline there out in Nurjohn's territory. Um, <clears throat> and that um, financing for that came under some suspicion because it was billions. It was like two and a half billion, the whole project. This Scottish guy, uh, Robbie, uh, was in the middle of it, arranging the finance, <clears throat> and had his own bit of uh, extraordinary misfortune. A couple of City of London police had uh, been at the Pearl Continental Hotel uh, just over some other matter, almost like on a holiday, uh, well, busman's holiday. And he'd ended up in the prison, and, and um, we'd met, and 
swap stories and everything like that. But he himself had been bailed out on the two and a half billion case, which was quite a good bit of engineering on his part. So <clears throat> he picked up very quickly because the, 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 I mean, you might recall the prison boss from Karachi Central had sent me over to this newcomer, Robbie. Uh, Foreigner come, big money, oil pipeline, 25,000. <laughs> it was like, I don't know, 2,000 rupees cash and then uh, another 20. And I said to Robbie, just slow down on the paying. Yeah, but I can, I know the way it is here. You can, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's even more so in here. So, but he was out, he was released. He had a couple of, he had like the floor of the Avari Hotel. Uh, and he was just, moving to um, Clifton Beach, which is uh, the name of a suburb of Karachi. And as it sounds, it's along the beachfront, a lot of high-rise apartments. And he was moving to the penthouse. He knew uh, through another Air Force contact who'd been in the prison, um, my Air Force man, and so they all knew each other. In fact, during the move um, from the Avari Hotel into the Clifton Penthouse, uh, by the time I arrived, the um, whole lot of army guys and Air Force people, about 15 of them, were just lugging furniture up the lifts and, and transferring it over this new place. So Robbie said, well, why don't you stay in the apartment? It's got six rooms in there up the top, and they've all got their own bathrooms, so there's nothing in it. Did your Air Force guy lose his property because you then disappeared, or did you already pay him more than the value of the property so it didn't matter that was in the agreement? Oh, no, I paid nothing, um, ever. What happened was I didn't flee. I um, went to the High Court along with... Uh, Robbie had organized 20 a class action case against the double jeopardy ruling that says um, in their constitution which was hastily drafted by a British uh, civil servant during partition, um, it says that uh, no one shall be uh, put to trial over the same matters twice. Uh, and that ruling has been, it was one of the, a series of um, all-purpose, ready-to-go constitutions that um, the British made uh, and gave to a few countries. Oddly enough, and, and so it applied there. So I took that to the, um, the high court, uh, won the case, and was acquitted completely. So oh, I, wow. I was a free man. Wow. The man got his house back. It was freed from, from links up there, and, and everybody was happy. Oh, I rewarded them, you know, in kind and in fashion. Um, but uh, I had, from the moment, I refused to keep paying any more in Karachi Central, even over my telephone or any other damn thing, and I was disappeared to Hyderabad, uh, I decided this will be the new way. You know, I've, I've sat here through eight episodes, bribing my way, sprinkling money here, uh, but at this stage, after 40 years in the field, endless wars, <laughs> endless collapses, great rebuildings of a life, you know, everything being shattered again. I decided that, nope, the new way David's going to operate, I'm paying nothing. Nothing for the drugs, nothing for the contacts, nothing ever. Well, it's not entirely true. You know, uh, when when a deal would go through, uh, 
people would all get their rewards. But I didn't want anything to look like anything before. I wanted to go back 40 years to the the hippie world in a funny kind of way, where money wasn't uh, argued out or nailed down. And um, I ended up doing um, business with people in, in even in that part of the world where no money was ever mentioned. Um, and... It even puzzled me. I would say, <laughs> uh, what are your expectations for this when it hits the West? You know, what, what do you think you're going to get? Up to you, David. I never worry anymore. And I'd, I'd probably pay maybe more than the odds. But I like that. It, it, it was good. So um, uh, the, there, was, there was really, okay, I suppose I could say this. Did I pay off my judge for the acquittal? Not exactly, but out of um, yeah, what fifteen thousand pounds that went to the lawyer, probably five thousand paid for the harsh pilgrimage of purification for the judge because he'd just come back from his journey to Mecca, and and uh, Ranashrim, my lawyer, said, David, it's a good day. He has been cleansed. He has been to Mecca. You know, praise salutations of the Lord. And he came back in white. Is that significant? White is what today will be. <laughs> yeah, he goes on a bit like this. So, um, again, um, it, it, I kind of like this thing of, um, I'm not going to talk money anymore, and if you're the kind of person who wants to talk money, deal with somebody else. Um, and, it, it, okay, there were limitations to this as time went on, but um, because especially people from outside didn't have a clue what anything was. But uh, you can imagine, it would be quite a nice feeling going through a completely illicit business without ever once having um, made um, an out loud agreement to do anything wrong, to break any law, and never mentioning any money. I imagine for the... Um, the opposition, if they were ever monitoring things, must have been very frustrating. But anyway, I didn't have to do anything very much at that time because I could put my feet up down the beachside and uh, uh, and look over at the waves in Karachi Port. And, uh, oh, yes, there was one other little wrinkle to it. What about the David the Diamond Dealer that I'd met there? Uh, and what did the Air Force captain want? I used to have a catchphrase in some of my business dealings where I'd say, I'll leave it up to your generosity. Uh, and I can't ever remember that going against um, my benefit. <laughs> oh. Mm. You mean it was to your benefit? It was to my benefit, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think it can be. Yeah. And in, in fact, uh, it, it does show you, I think, the goal. People, people will lowball themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, but it also shows the the gulf of the between the inexperienced and the experienced. Yeah, and also that when you meet somebody that for whatever reason um, you know knows his or her way around you know the playing field, you know there's no hurry to deal with any of that. Yeah. So you know people, <laughs> some of our viewers, uh, you'll be shocked, shocked to know. I often make inquiries, uh, how do I get into uh, such and such a business? 
something illegal, I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere. And the sad thing is it, it's it's a very different world these days. Um, you can, I, on, on my own channel, I think I put out uh, something recently about 10 uh, smuggling devices, uh, starting with the 1950s Grundig Radio, um, to uh, one that involved, and that's a transition in the way the world works um, by going through being hit, having everything searched, um, having nothing on my body or internally, and yet still getting through. So um, from mere disguise to um, deflection in a, in a massive way. Um, in, in that one, the whole point of it is that um, look where we are now. Hardly the few people who travel by air, just as, we, as we're recording, only do so out of necessity. And there's some strong family need. You can imagine, is this good for smugglers? People up to mischief? I don't think so. Not only that, um, everything is so, even more information goes into the system uh, as to who a passenger is. And that's going to be magnified even further with, uh, if not medical records, you know, certainly close and things about people that uh, will be heavily known. Gone are the days when somebody can put on a new identity, like wearing a new suit. Uh, there's no background to it. There's no Facebook presence. Um, there's no, um, you know, and we know it exists, the Google advertising profile of uh, the individual, all algorithm, no human involved, but it, you know, it does mean that when you are anywhere near Instagram or Facebook, you uncannily get the ads for something you've been looking at. Google keeps sending me emails now showing everywhere I've driven. Yeah, no, they can do that. My my phone. Um, I use because I can't remember where the hell I was working. Um, also, uh, the slumlords I work for. <laughs> um, see, the CCTVs or, or slumlords covering up a mess or, or somebody uh, where they don't want a stranger go, running around with the keys to a place. No, not because it's illegal, it's just uh, embarrassing or they don't want anybody to know. So I'm the kind of person that comes in on that. But I can't remember um, where I've been, so Google Maps is perfect. I can Every month it says, David, look at your timeline. And I can watch, what the hell was that? <laughs> I mean, it 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 will uh, offer you if it hasn't got the address right, you can correct it. So you can even, I think it's great. I've got an alibi for everything for the last two years, every moment. Going back to um, transactions, then, did you have some people who did still like say this quantity, this price, and then when you pay them, even if there's like a few fake twenty dollar bills in there, you're going to get some kind of. Summons to a meeting the next day. Well, um, it varies around the world. Um, in uh, the payments are imbalanced, aren't they? Uh, money going back to South America for uh, for goods or services, and money going back to um, Central Asia, um, uh, the Middle East, um, Middle East, uh, the uh, Gulf states, always very exacting. Uh, they they work on margins and, and and it's not drugs particularly. 
but so they're, they're kind of exacting. Uh, somewhat greedier, and I found in South America, um, but mostly kind of one-upmanship uh, on their next competitor. Uh, India, Pakistan, Thailand, kind of just happy that it was, you know, uh, more money than they've had before. And I've always tried to um, um, work so that uh, my contacts or friends in um, a source place will have an elevation in life in, in some way. So that their position will move up from what they had before and so it will always be better. You know, it takes quite a greedy slob, doesn't it, to come out of some place and suddenly be able to afford a couple of houses and um, that trip to Europe, whatever, and then still want uh, more on top. As soon as you see that sign, you know you're going to have trouble with that that person. Um, you know, the most uh, calculating, uh, or the people who take the strongest offense at, at being out by any amount, whether in... <laughs> In weight or in money, um, Scandinavians. Ah, if you're a, a, a krona short in Sweden, you'll hear about it. Um, I just said to somebody, "Look, um, yeah, that was underweight, but he'll make it up next time." But you can't do that. Why not? <laughs> he didn't mean to. He just didn't have time to weigh anything. <laughs> All right, but tell him not to do it. All right. You tell her. Um, <laughs> so you, so you, you still, you, you got acquitted then, mm. and you're in the hotel. Um, yes, I was in the hotel, but I moved into the the penthouse down penthouse. in Clifton, and um, uh, yes, we have. I have two things on my plate. Uh, apart from the fact that I'm not wanting to do anything, I'm kind of exhausted after all this. I've had Thailand to get out of, you know, uh, Karachi. Um, the Air Force captain, we'd been discussing, you know, when we were locked up together, what would be, he said, I can take you to a place where you will be your own law, where no one can touch you ever. Well, that's intriguing, isn't it? I didn't have anything really in mind. You can be your own law. Yeah. And, uh, oh, the, and the, I was trying to stop the diamond dealer from getting his wife, Jeanette, to sell the family home uh, and it didn't help having him on Akbar Shah's by the second you know 20,000 a phone call phone in there uh, him crying on the other end saying you know, making up stories about how terrible it was wasn't that bad <laughs> uh, so uh, but uh, the, the most interesting one was heading off in a little another little caravan uh, out towards the borderlands again, uh, not with uh, I, I went to visit uh, Norjon, um, who'd uh, been released again, um, but it was the Air Force captain who uh, took me over to um, the Afghan border. Uh, and this was coming up to 2000. So this is kind of when um, Taliban uh, are in early stages. Um, there's still lots of 
group still fighting over the bones and the wreckage of Afghanistan. But um, I could see, I mean, this is with hindsight, but I could see the sort of formation of groups of people that didn't seem to fit in with the, the cargo network. When we, uh, I ended up with the Air Force captain, some kind of agency spook, I presume he worked for sometimes, the ISI, um, somebody who was an Afghani uh, fixer of some sort, and we were in a kind of small town, and it, I don't know, there was something suffocating about it. Uh, they were very reluctant to let me wander about. I said, look, guys, I do that. That's something I always do, go for a wander. You can come with me or not, I don't care. But I'm... And, and I did, and I could see sort of um, <clears throat> some, um, some compounding, by which I mean there would be places that were a bit boarded up, and I did have a little peek at something, and... I saw some people were using, playing around with um, uh, peroxides and uh, and acids. It, they it used to be the German rocket fuel. You mix two chemicals together and they they blow up. They they made some little crazy plane that was a rocket that it goes up there. This were A stuff and B stuff, very carefully mixed together, um, and. I couldn't conceivably think of what a group of young men, all dressed in black and, you know, okay, usual rifles lying around, but what their interest was in explosives. Um, but I could see no real good would come of it. I would end up being, um, what, the Western contact, not so much, but I would be always prey to somebody or, or used by somebody or... I felt like I was in that part of some movie where the audience is yelling, don't go in there, don't go in for that one. And it was very much like that. And uh, oddly enough, I ran into, uh, some weeks later, into um, Jeremy from the British uh, High Commission in Karachi, who uh, used to smuggle me in money to the courtroom. Um, and I said to him, I said, look, uh, Jeremy, I'm... I've got my feet up at the moment, but uh, I can see some groups of people who are certainly going to get under my feet and from your guys' point of view, much worse so. They've been playing around with explosives and not for the kind of blowing each other up. The only possible, I can't think beyond it, is if you wanted a liquid explosive that you could disguise getting through some checkpoint whether that be uh, as a body pack through to <clears throat> some security thing or an aeroplane. Uh, are you interested at all in uh, getting rid of my competition for me? <laughs> uh, we had a long chat about it, but uh, he, uh, he didn't do anything. I mean, it's not the first time that uh, out of self-interest, um, I've um, pushed them in the general direction of, um, I guess what you'd say, uh, um, e extremist groups, and they never do anything about it. Um, 
I don't know why it is. Uh, you'd think they'd show an interest. I'd like to think it was because their intelligence was better than mine, but I kind of don't think so. Do you think they have a vested interest in allowing things to happen? To some degree, yes. Um, it's, it's not unknown in British and American history where we um, let something turn into a mess so we can side with the winning faction or get our man in in power or something like that. Just watching Roman Empire now where Commodus has handed the running of the empire to his former slave who's now the em emperor's chief advisor oh, and yeah. he decides to have a grain shortage so he can be the savior but right. he stored all this grain in places and the grain shortage has caused the plague and now with the plague he can't return can't the grain the <laughs> so he ends up getting killed i think the um i'm not sure whether it was till diocletian's era that there was um a kind of uh uh, welfare state in ancient Rome, wasn't there, where a certain amount of grain would be uh, given out to the poor, uh, certainly the citizens of Rome at one stage. Um, That's how they kept in, the masses happy. What was the phrase? Bread and circuses? Uh, it was coming from Egypt, wasn't it? Mm. Bread and the games. Uh, but, you know, uh, a timely moment perhaps to say that, um, and not for any... Uh, moral grounds, but slavery was their undoing in the sense that, uh, never mind uh, any misery it might have been involved, though slavery in those days was quite uh, at a different stage. Freeing slaves was a very fashionable thing for a Roman citizen to do, as you know. There were near on competitions to see how many could be freed amongst, you know, when it was in fashion. <laughs> and uh, what do they call it? Manumissance, when a, a slave is freed? And he's supposed to have a certain amount of payment set aside for his eventual freedom. So, so quite a bit different than perception. But um, without, with having all that um, very cheap labor, you only have to feed them, um, there's no need. And without need, there's no innovation. I saw um, a grain mill in France that was from about, I suppose, three... 20 AD, so quite late empire in a way. Uh, it was down a, a mountain, had uh, seven or eight water wheels. Um, yet it was more of a novelty than anything else when you had a lot of people. And it, it was probably even brought about because it was harder and harder to get um, conscripts or uh, Shanghai people into your armies uh, by the late empire. Um, but um, without that, and we, can you imagine if uh, there, there had been the need for an industrial revolution in, um, I don't know, 500 AD instead of 1500 AD? Where would we be now? Well, look where America is now. They've got 2.5 million slaves by way of the prison population. That's a record yeah. number of slaves if you look throughout history. And you've got black guys working... Um, on the exact same plantations as prisoners now they were working on before slavery was abolished. Really? What were the, um, in the, well, perhaps Arizona was different from anywhere else, but in that prison, um, what were the 
prison industries as such. I mean, I don't mean the jobs cleaning the landing. Well, or if you look at what the, the prisoners produce now in America, all the major corporations have signed on. Military equipment. Oh, really? Um, all kinds of military gear. Um, How much do they earn in prison? What's the best way? Anywhere to from zero yeah. to fifty cents an hour. Okay, so they barely enough to um, contribute to their commissary. Uh, well, before um, tobacco was removed, and the cigarettes were removed. Is that removed everywhere in the US? I, I think I don't know. Maybe they still have areas where you can smoke and stuff, but in some, it's, each state's got different laws, but. Um, the prisoners just wanted mostly to get the tobacco and the coffee mm. from that meager little income, and then they would do all that slave labor. All right. Uh, I know um, prison wages um, are, are quite high in a Swiss prison, and yet they have a 70% uh, foreign national uh, population. When I was in Scandinavia, a uh, prisoner I remember a couple of, I got ghosted there once, which we'll come to one of these episodes, and ended up in some small town. Um, There's always these two Polish guys working down in the dungeons there um, for, um, I think they made about 120 euros a week, which was quite good money. I mean, they'd save it all up and they'd go home to it. Um, but from what you're saying about the, the American system, it is... Uh, kind of slave labor. What, what about the unions? Don't they object to um, uh, prison uh, labor on things that their members might be able to be doing? I think they've crushed the union power and the government contractors are so powerful now taking advantage of all this slave labor mm. that um, they don't have much of a voice to unions against it. And it's all just the legislators just sign it all in. Mm. And... Um, like the black guys, when they after they freed them from slavery, the they put them on cocaine to increase their productivity. And the Mexican uh, workers, they came in, you know, they smoked weed at the end of the day to relax from their work. So by introducing drug laws, they were mm. able to rearrest their own workers, <laughs> and they left a loophole in the Constitution. Yeah. In the Constitution, it says slavery is abolished in this country except for people convicted of crimes. So low-level drug possession and loitering laws enabled them to just rearrest all these people and get them working for free again. Oh, and then that's to this day. That's why you still got a disproportionate amount of black people in in the uh, U.S. prison system working as slaves. I, I, I can I can see that. Now they're also what, what did they call them the Jim Crow laws that yeah. um, made it very difficult for. Um, black Americans to register to vote and to campaign or to become part of the uh, political system. Totally. Um, so there were many, um, I do remember reading an account of um, um, very early day, an, an observer watching um, how some of the southern states uh, had a whole lot of uh, black guys as elected representatives. This is before they worked how to rig it back to make sure that um, Whitey uh, got back in power, uh, saying, you know, it looked like a, it was very critical of it, you know, the place was uh, uh, messy and, and raucous and, and and didn't really get anything much done. But even back then, and this would have been um, 1870s, 
the journalists thought, well, it might be a mess, but it's kind of democratic anyway. But that was soon seen too, wasn't it? And then the governors as well, they'll bring out some black guy from death row just before they're up for re-election, fry that person, and then they're guaranteed to get votes for being tough on crime. Yeah, yeah, you can't do too badly. I mean, uh, Trump is, uh, I don't know why he's worried. Uh, he'll get re-elected anyway. Uh, I've seen the poll, it's gone. Yeah, like yeah, even, yeah, hasn't it? It's, it's, uh, it, it, it'll be, he'll have some uh, sleepless afternoons or whenever he takes his nap because it will look grim until uh, the finish line and I think he, he'll get over. But he's only up against uh, Joe Biden and, and really he, people are funny, aren't they? Joe would make perfectly good president. He's got enough political experience. He'd probably, um, but... He is a is uh, a Democrat, and then there won't be overwhelming um, Democratic control of both houses there uh, because of the Republicans. People will kind of swing back towards Trump at the the last hour. And I mean, what a, you know, presidents can only do bad, can't they? They never do any good. The, the least worst. And how did he handle problems that have been thrown on his desk? Not particularly well. But then again, not entirely badly. I, I suppose it depends where we are in November uh, as to how bad things get. If, if there's some turn of events which make it look like he's a complete bungler. But, you know, Americans are quite religious in a way. Hand of God. You know, they won't necessarily blame him for, you know, people dropping dead or whatever befalls them. He will get blamed, on the other hand, if there's no jobs around, uh, whatever. They, even if they're grave diggers. Because he had created <laughs> record employment, hadn't he? They hadn't seen that low unemployment in decades. Well, he's credited with it. Credited yes. with it, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's hard to say whether any um, leading politician uh, created anything. <laughs> uh, you know, they just happened to be there at the time. Uh, and, and probably if they'd slept through it, oh. the same would have happened. <laughs> But now the mask has caused um, everything to be reversed. So. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you want to see those episodes, they're on David's channel. <laughs> yes. So, okay, we've got um, oh. about 15, 20 minutes to go to get it to two hours. Do you want to continue with your story? Uh, or? Yes. Um, well, I'll get to a, um, a certain point with it. Um, the... Okay, uh, I kind of declined on the offers of my own vassal state on the border of um, Afghanistan, which, um, and oddly enough, I, I, I preferred, um, I did look at the um, townships, which were, um, well, the cities around uh, Pakistan, which I thought would be um, better options, and uh, did look at a place that became uh famous that I liked, uh, notorious at one stage, because it met the criteria. I was after some place that, when I was in Lahore, I noticed that Model Town, a suburb there, and Cantonment, which is originally where the army accommodation, were very neatly, you know, I wouldn't say manicured lawns, but by, uh, you can judge a street there in that part of the world by the amount of encroachment, as they call it. 
the houses are on both sides. They've swallowed, they've built their houses out into the, the, the sidewalk, the pavement, and then onto the road. And, and suddenly there's only like a virtual broken pit of rock, which is a, a one-way road from a, you know, a very generous two-road. But the ones that are still okay uh, are the army-controlled ones. And I learned from Robbie the Scots, army friends and my own Air Force, that they had a kind of different world there. Um, uh, which had a, um, they, they, they liked to live in a controlled way. So I looked at all the, the places that uh, might lend itself to that. Lahore was good in an area, but I, it was maybe um, likely to bump into too many people there. Uh, I looked at Faisalabad too, which is a uh, modest township. Uh, interesting, it used to be called uh, Lalpur up until 1979, when the name was <laughs> auctioned off in a way to, to honor King Faisal of Arabia, who uh, gave them money. But um, Lord Lyle uh, had this town named after him. And if you land on the place, you can see the Union flag. The street plan is like that. And there's a statue of Queen Victoria on it. I tried to get the policeman to stand in front of Queen Victoria like that, but he was too shy. Would have made a nice snap. Though. Interestingly enough, they don't want to pull down those old statues. They kind of, I wouldn't say they necessarily look fondly back on the history, but they do accept it's a fact that these things happened and they didn't feel too badly about it. Well, their grandfathers and great-grandfathers spoke nicely about it. But I also looked at the other towns that were named after English people and Abbottabad was one of them and it seemed to have everything going for it. Never heard of it. Only a few flights in and out, um, but regular enough. And why? Because the army had a, a big training um, colleges and things there, big family things there. looked really nice. But I wasn't the only one who was uh, looking for a quiet place to live at the time. Osama bin Laden moved in there. Um, so probably he was going on, on the same basis that you kind of live in plain sight, but you pick the part that's... Um, yeah, very much under control. Um, now, um, I'd also been speaking to um, uh, the wife of uh, David, the diamond dealer, uh, because he still couldn't, his bail was being tangled up by uh, Akbar Shah there. Uh, he wasn't getting enough money out of it. So, but his, uh, I'd spoken to his wife, um, he had a couple of uh, uh, kids, daughters, that were really quite little. I think one was seven, the other one was 11 or something. They were coming. I recommended against it, but uh, suddenly I had to find a place for um, the, where to put them. I didn't want to throw them into the, the pit of uh, um, the center of Karachi, but through the army connections, uh, a place that was recommended um, was, um, it was actually built as a, an army club down um, by the beachside along the coast there, and then taken over as a hotel. But it, it was the um, well, Diamond Cliff Resort or something. But uh, oddly enough, it it's a, was the best one there out of town. So um, I had to pick the girls up at the airport, uh, David's wife, and then 
get them down to the um, see him in court. The guy was still in chains. He could have had Beakley. He wouldn't let me. He was so nervous. He thought the man that had got him into this much trouble was going to get him out of it. Um, very, um, you know, and it was it was kind of hard for I mean, embarrassing in a way uh, for him to be sitting there in in chains at the courtroom as his uh, little family have turned up. Um, he um, was still under the clutches of this guy. So that was the situation to sort out. Clinging to a pipe dream. Mm. Um, and um, I, I had kind of lots to do. I, um, um, and I suppose the only other thing that uh, people have followed it to this point what about Nurjan? Well, I, I, I visited his um, um, little enclave out there. It was, I went past the shipbreaking yards, um, uh, stood around while he uh, pretended to make some kind of business with him. Um, could get the the smuggling opportunities were quite good and strong. I could get um, some. Uh, pretty much as much hash uh, as I wanted smuggled out of there. But here was the thing. I took one of the, the skiffs over from the, not far from the shipbreaking yard down there. Massive sight, by the way. You imagine all these old cruise ships, cargo ships, oil tankers, all dragged with huge chains onto the shore while an army of people descend on the thing, rip the guts out of it, um, um, hack it down with blow torches. You know, quite dangerous work. And the town that was a, uh, had grown up around this industry uh, was their houses were all made of odd bits of fittings from these ships. Sometimes the cruise ships. I went into one which had like an ornate staircase, but there were three people living under it. Um, another sort of refinements you wouldn't expect from there. Um, but. W- I found um, there was also a very uh, kind of, and I had to be a little bit careful with Norjohn because uh, he would try to please everybody at once. So um, uh, he was running some uh, a bit of a still. He had a couple of guys down in the in the bottom making some. Uh, or I suppose it'd be closer to vodka as, 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 as you might want. Oddly enough, though, they have, you can get locally made beer in the Islamic uh, uh, Republic of Pakistan, and, uh, and whiskey and, and vodkas are all made by uh, um, breweries licensed for the Christian community. And they had little bottle shops around there, which are kind of unmarked. Um, but uh, because their, their very existence was an embarrassment. And in fact, the, the uh, Air Force guys that had helped with the moving into the, the penthouse had been rewarded with a, a few crates of beer uh, that they were otherwise too embarrassed to, uh, uh, to go and get. Um, but I think given the time uh, rounding out the, that side of thing before we move on into... Um, uh, back into Europe, and uh, building that can probably 
uh, wait uh, till uh, um, put a good foundation on it to to go on with that was um, I'm trying to think of uh, since it's been a while. Have you heard from uh, uh, anybody's had any questions that were outstanding? Um, I've heard from people who um, have. Uh, mm, Asked usual things that um, sometimes about um, uh, things to do with smuggling, um, or uh, people are very identity conscious uh, at the moment. I noticed uh, I did something on that a while back. How um, yeah, that shift has taken place, and I, I think people who find themselves isolated or whatever. Uh, have had time to to think about who they are and how they work. I'll look on part eight and see if there are any questions. Let's see. Uh, yeah. Um, I think, uh, what do you suppose it is that uh, people have the idea that they want to walk away from their lives? I, I've known a couple of people who have done it. Um, they've got up after dinner sometime and gone out to get a newspaper and never come back. Um, and in two cases where that person's been found again years later he or she has actually built up a new life but almost a a mirror image of the one they walked away from Uh, we've got um, maybe they do this is part what nine today is it Mm, the first the top comment is ha 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 love this guy's story is the no end to it (laughs) I hope uh, not. Mm. I just want to keep going forever with David. Mm. Well, um, I, I suppose there is. And we have the trend, the, the next uh, networks. Where I decided to um, keep everything small scale with a, a very select band of uh, independent smugglers. Um, and that uh, involved going back to Christiania, which is in Denmark. And, and that place is... Uh, have you ever been there? Denmark? Yeah. No. Well, in, in uh, Copenhagen, there's a, a, a section of it called Christiania, and it's, it used to be something, uh, was it? It's now a bicycle factory, but it has a whole lot of like counterculture hippie types uh, that live in there. Used to have, uh, it's got a pub in there, they're against hard drugs <laughs> publicly, um, but um, they have Pusher Street or did at the time I was there, which had a series of uh, caravans. And it was quite good. It was the first, I suppose, um, before. Now, we've got how many U.S. states have now got recreational cannabis? More than eight anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But this was before the regulated world, and it was a bit more fun. I used to get um, a few pre-made joints in little plastic containers, uh, that were, were made up, sort of a cone-shaped kind of thing. But it, and <laughs> it, w- it was more of a headache running those back to the UK in a funny kind of way than it was uh, anything more dangerous because you know, it stinks so much. Uh, uh, and the, the hash sellers there have about five different types. Um, something, with, it, it probably was, when they call it Lebanese gold, I, I think it was, it was very that light, granular, sort of hashish. 
mild, uh, soporific, uh, um, you know, something you could, an after lunch one, you know, I'm sure. Um, but it, from what it looks like, the the way the US is operating, it's all kind of, it's less like a, a smoker's club from uh, the 1920s or a tobacconist shop than um, a kind of a Sweden system belugget, which is their uh, way of selling alcohol. You know, they're quite puritanical in Sweden. If you want to buy booze, you have to uh, go into this grey corner shop, line up, fill in a form, tick what you want in wine and then spirits, and then you take your place, next number, uh, click, 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 uh, your ID goes through there, you know, they're all ID to hell over there. And um, you you collect it at the other end. All, all brown paper bags go, I mean, it is like what I guess it's buying a recreational marijuana in Colorado, a bit boring. Um I mean, sure, they've got a, a showroom, but part of the law is, uh, of course, not to recommend anything other than as an alternative to this or that. In other words, they're not allowed to promote the use of um, the marijuana. Um, but <laughs> how can you distinguish between something without uh, favoring one thing over another for different purposes, which in a sense is a promotion? I mean... Whole thing is, uh, I don't think it's legalized at a national level yet, is it? Federals it are still be. holding it as Schedule One substance more harmful than cocaine, with no medicinal value whatsoever, because that's what the corporations want it to be. So, I'll oh, get back to that. But so, even medicinal, uh, so-called medicinal, with no medicinal value whatsoever. The feds say that it, that's all wrong. That's what the corporations want it to be, because I think it was in the. Um, 80s was it that reagan bush destroyed made the universities destroy all research into medicinal marijuana allowed one university mm. to uh, research marijuana but could only research its negative properties oh really <laughs> um that kind of really bends over a table backwards the idea of research doesn't it <laughs> uh you know, any outcome is supposed to be uh, what you're looking for, whatever it might be. Um, it what, is. That's what they were looking for, negative properties. There is that. Can, I always thought that if we had the last 50 years where about to the inevitable, recreational drug use is a, a thing that would exist, the big farmer would spend a, quite a bit of money trying to tailor things up. So you'd be able to get reliable drugs. Well, you GW Pharma's got the biggest weed plant in Europe, and that's a, a UK company. Mm. Sativax, oh, the spray and stuff. They, the, if, but even when it comes to the uh, more psychoactive drugs, um, or um, there's ne <laughs> I suppose when it comes to the things that produce a euphoria, there is no clear pharmacological... Um, research done between, say, that group of uh, painkillers, which is euphoric, but only while they come into effect. You know, 20 minutes later, you're kind of stable and then drops down after two hours. They've got a very short active life of about four hours. That's why 
when you're on a morphine drip, you've got to get that button a bit of a nudge every four hours. Oh, I tape mine down, you know, that's the easiest way to go. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but that group of things compared to um, the, the amph- you could call it the amphetamine group, then to the trippy side of it, where's all the research on that, the distinctions between the benefits of uh, how to feel good without... <laughs> I spoke to somebody who lives, an expat who lives in Dubai the other day, and he said, well, we were on this theme, and he thought that uh, just as well Coke wasn't legal, he'd be uh, quite, uh, he'd be spending a lot of his money on it. I don't, okay, admittedly governments don't drop the, the price of drugs they legalize, do they? I mean, that marijuana in the U.S. states is just as expensive. Well, that's the thing. Was. It's because of drug laws you've got the inflated black market price, but they're all near worthless plants, aren't they, at the source countries? But the legal marijuana is still pretty highly priced, priced anyway. Oh, yeah, but that will always be the case. Say we made a drug tomorrow, and in the U.K., anything we make that's not listed as legal is now illegal. Um, the, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a crazy bit of law, isn't it? Saying it's that totally every crazy. substance that is mind-altering in any way or f- affects the CNS is against the law. So that just hands it over to the black market who produces toxic substances. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Kids die because of toxic substances. They don't know what to get in. And adults don't have a very good time. And <laughs> 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 uh, it, it makes uh, making making choices extraordinarily difficult. Um, the choice is never between yes and no. It's between what's it like or how's it feel or what are the long terms well portugal sourced heroin and gave it to the addicts and got them off the heroin because they weren't afraid of getting arrested and the health teams cancelled them off the heroin and that was a very cheap way to deal with that because of Mm. all the crime um around that drug and the cost of incarcerating people and policing all that and everything else they saved a fortune as well i i in 40 years um I've known very clearly two kinds of uh, heroin user. Those who stumble in and out of it because uh, they're just messing around with it and they get themselves in trouble by getting a habit. But there are about, and I'd say between mm, 8 and 10% of the whole population that are born just misery gutters. They are born unhappy. They're... Um, genes have left them with brain wiring that they, it's like depressives. They, they feel like a, a couple of people who've uh, used to say, well, it's the only time I felt normal was when I was on something like that. But research about what it is about that, can you make something like that that wouldn't be addictive? Would it be necessarily uh the end of the world if people were taking something or other uh, to make themselves feel happier all their lives? Who knows? Because we do know that in 100 years, when the electrode implant into the uh, spinal column is there for what they'd call legitimate medical use and to avoid epilepsies, to stimulate um, regrowth of damaged things, to do with paralysis, Parkinsonism, all of those, Somebody will say, well, while we've got all those little wires in place, 
Try this little program I've typed out on the computer that processes, you know, sends off the stimulus signal. You'll enjoy this one. So if the <laughs> drug put, is put, a program... <laughs> that would certainly put vibrating nipple clamps out of business. Well, um, I think for some people in their lives, putting aside the nipple clamps is a little overdue. <laughs> a nipple was not meant to be clamped. And... Uh, <laughs> Looking at the questions. Mm, anything interesting? The most there? commonly uh, asked question is when is part nine? These have just been coming in for months. I just well, got one the other just day. Had it, really. Mm. <laughs> People are complimenting us on the blue spectacles. Um, as usual, we get this comment, I think, on every episode. I could listen to David just recite the phone book. Well, that's about all you'll get at the moment <laughs> because I'm quite busy. But uh, uh, one by the way, uh, a German version uh, coming out, German fans, called Flucht, and Flucht I did. It's the old escape book, but I'm going to type my, it My up. friends in Halle and Leipzig need to get on that. Mm. So um, one person saying these need to be at least three hours long. Yeah. Um, one saying, um, David, have you heard Neddy Smith yes, was on his deathbed in October but miraculously survived? Oh, I thought he was gone. He, Neddy Smith was an uh, um, Australian villain, uh, various sorts, but pretty much a, a leech a, a extortionist and um, complete informer, by the way. <laughs> Some people have misinterpreted Billy the failed boxer as Billy Moore and asking no, for no, confirmation. No, 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 no connection. We've had Billy, Billy Moore Billy on the Moore. podcast. Have you not seen that? He was in prison no. in Thailand. Mm. Gripping story. Uh, what did you think of the film that was made out of his story? Interesting film, I thought. It's, it's good, I think. Well yeah, made. it's artsy, Probably isn't it? But intense, without the language. Uh, not um, not speaking in the language barrier. Anything to do with only aspects of him, I would think. Uh, inspired by, I think you'd say in that case. But it was this. Yeah, this question yeah. might cause a plot spoiler, so you might just. You know, we can exercise well, our right around. to remain silent on it. Mm. Um, ask him whatever happens to the DEA agent. Are we going to get to that in the story? We are indeed. Uh, last time uh, Bill Shankman was in uh, gloating over my uh, still-breathing corpse in uh, Karachi as I'd been arrested there. But now that I'm uh, acquitted, he's trying to make it difficult for me to get a passport out of Dodge. Uh, the Australians offered one, but uh, fooled around on it. And uh, the British, well, they were dragging their heels too. But I didn't mind being in Karachi Town, as you'll hear next time. Have you had any dealings with Prince Andrew or other royal family members? <laughs> uh, not really. Extremely dull people who uh, are, are people I try to avoid. Really. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Somebody, uh, a friend of mine who knew them all well, said, uh, uh, for the most part, um, uh, they are yeah, kind of dull. The mathematician David mentions was probably Andre Weil, who was wrongly imprisoned for spying in 1940. He made so much progress with his work that he joked he was going to have to arrange to be locked up to two to three months every year. What, so that he could work more? So he could make more progress on his work. <laughs> who was it? Cloistered. Who was the questioner there? I mean, the response. The questioner is Mathemagical 55. All oh, right. I, not a regular one, I, I don't think. But uh, Doesn't ring a bell, that one, does it? 
No, no. Um, I my the the um, fundamentalist Christians have been stalking me. Have uh, really uh, eased up. I don't know whether they've been struck down by the wrath of God in some form. <laughs> That'd be ironic, wouldn't it? Um, Did David vote for the trillionaire bankers and the Brexit con? <clears throat> Uh, did I like the uh, Brexit? Well, uh, you know, I went public and said Brexit will never happen. And it seems um, that though other people are trying to collect on the bet, but the fact is we have yet to see anything that um, shows one change of operating procedure. Uh, and what, even though I don't think, you know, I think it will be the great British way of just ignoring the whole thing and going on as though nothing happened, maintaining existing agreements, signing things over, it will be the same, except we won't be part of it. No, no MEPs anymore, and we'll have to pay the fees on the sly too, by the way, like Norway does. Are you the David Attenborough of prison and life stories? <clears throat> there we have it. In the wild, the novice smuggler. <laughs> and you can tell by his ragged jeans that he is ready to mate with the customs officer. <laughs> uh, I can see that. Well, uh, it's less wildlife than a kind of, uh, uh, what would I think, a termite mound, very developed. Uh, evolution's left its mark. When will David tell the Pakistan stories? It was good to listen to the 2019 casual chat, but itching to hear Karachi stuff. Is that Sandboy666? This is... Philo F. Mofo Kang. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, he's uh, surfaced. Uh, um, he should let me know uh, what particular, I mean, the, the, the whole comprehension of uh, uh, Pakistan was so difficult. You can imagine uh, just from some of the things we said today, if you give money to this one, that'll disappear. Uh, who can you get to do something? And it was only by this whole change of policy of, not declaring any particular things and not paying for anything. Elliot Benjamin wants to know what you think of this Churchillian quote. Yeah. Play for more you can afford to lose, and you will soon learn the rules of the game. I quite like that one. Um, <laughs> really, I suppose uh, you have to define um, how much it is you can ever afford to lose on something. Let's say everything you've got is what you can afford to lose. It depends. For for over this um, 40-year career, I always thought, doesn't matter if I walk out broke tomorrow. I, I think uh, I, I said, uh, I've told people about that one trip I arrived in Stockholm with not enough money for a hotel bed for the night, but cargo worth half a million. Oh, and not a contact whatsoever other than a murmured deathbed whispering about such and such. It was a journalist who knew people. But as soon as I arrived there, I knew it was all right. So to, to, to have nothing was never really threatening. I, I Would you say that your wealth is inside you then? It mm -hmm. is your uh, knowledge, accumulated knowledge, and your health? <clears throat> well, health, uh, I think the uh, web of uh, molecules that I've ingested over the years is quite a firm structure, but um, 
I, I never really, well, I wouldn't be working on a day-to-day -day grind as it was. And they were quite like, I still like making things. Tonka Tanka has asked, um, David is a small man. How does he handle prison violence? As a spectator. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes ringside with the best seats in the house, I can tell you. I always try and get those. The um, <clears throat> I won't go to any uh, prison executions anymore. I decided that after the, the hanging in um, Karachi, uh, when they had to put the sandbags on this skinny little thing around his ankles, and they had a row of them on the back wall there from which they selected. Um, I must say it, it uh, did show some professionalism, though, to have different sized sandbags to attach to different uh, ankles to get the right snapping weight. Do you still have nightmares about seeing prison executions? Oh, not that. But um, I wouldn't welcome anybody to my dreams. They're always set in a prison of some kind. But I don't often know it's a prison until towards the end of the dream. And sometimes one of them has had a glass ceiling where I climbed to the top of a building and found I was stuck under the dome of some science fiction series, I guess. Uh, they're always there. You've got a hater here, Josh Good. NPK. When are we getting to the end of the story of him being arrested in Pakistan? I was pretty disappointed to see that this podcast contains virtually nothing of the rest of that part of the story, unless I zoned out and missed it all. Doubt that, though. Well, um, you've really got to the end. We're at the end of the uh, arrest in Pakistan, and now we're going on to further adventures as soon as I can get enough passports to get together and uh, deal with the ambitions of the Air Force, the spook services, a couple of anti-narcotics agencies, and um, the women in my life that seem to <clears throat> stake their claim. <clears throat> with nipple clumps. Truth or spoof has asked... Is really truth, this guy? <laughs> Have you seen this? I mean, the photo... Polaroids lying around. Truth or spoof has asked... What would David change about how your actions adversely impacted or hurt other people? Mm. Oh, well, yes, sometimes they, uh, when they get rich, they buy a bed and it's less comfortable than their old bed. Or they buy a sports car and then they have an accident in it because they can't handle a, you know, a, a seven-shift uh, uh, Italian sports car. And so it has inversely affected them. But... Uh, I'm being glib about it, but uh, anybody who found themselves in trouble over any of my business affairs could always come to me, and I'd find a solution. <laughs> <laughs> who do you want to play in your movie? Well, you already had one movie. Who was that that played you? Toby Schmitz, his name was. Toby Schmitz. Yeah, unfortunately. Sounds German. Um, I, uh, I don't know what he's doing these days, but he didn't shoot to fame in anything. But he's a good actor. Yeah, he's not too bad. People can watch your movie on YouTube, I believe, still. It, it's still around. I, I fell across it the other day, um, and it uh, it's not in terribly high quality there. <laughs> but I'm not going to put it on my channel because it'd be... Uh, I, really, I mean, it doesn't take much to get a copyright violation from no, YouTube. No, it doesn't. Does it? So, What's the name of your movie right. again? Uh, <clears throat> the Man Who Got Away. It's uh, part of the Underbelly uh, Australian um, crime series. Is Danny Dyer still on YouTube? 
Um, probably is. And I think what I have of it, I'm entitled to use anyway. But You're entitled to use? Um, I'm certainly entitled to use the bits where I'm speaking. You should do a Danny Dyer dissection video. Uh, what of him? Well, you show a little clip, this. and then you give your actual reality comment. Yeah, or, or perhaps uh, who would like to see uh, how does Danny Dyer shape up as a smuggler? <laughs> Has he got it in him? Would he take it in him? <laughs> I'd say not. He wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't take much in him, not because he's not capacious enough, but <clears throat> he's earning enough from. Is he still on EastEnders? I don't know. I just remember him getting scared on the boat with you. Oh, well, yes, it was a bumpy boat. Uh, and I was cooking. <laughs> anything, anything could happen. Father beans. Mm. Little. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. If you had to uh, eat somebody in this world, there's no other source of food except another human being. Who would you like to cook? Playing crash scenario, you mean? And there's a bunch of dead yeah. passengers, and you, oh, you're, you're not about to die. Necessarily dead, but uh, <laughs> to be deaded if necessary. Who would I like to eat? Oh, yeah. everybody in the entire world. Yeah, who who do you think immediately would be tasty? Well, they say if you eat people, mm. um, you kind of take in their energy. I've never found. <laughs> I just get a good night's sleep. So it has to be someone with a positive vibe. That's what I'm saying. Mm. I, I think um, some butchering skills would be in order. Remember that the fillet is at the back, is that ridge that runs down under the outer muscle there, and should be cut against the grain. I mean, how many acts of cannibalism have been destroyed by poor butchery? So I hate to think. You'd feast down on a Kardashian bum, would you? What, all that silicon? <laughs> I, I would tell you there was a kid in Bangkok who uh, got sick of inserting shells into his wang. So he managed to get himself some industrial silicon, which he then injected like a half-wit right into his willy. And the whole thing reacted and it's, well, certainly it... Uh, became swollen to his satisfaction in that sense. But apart from not being able to pee without great effort, uh, it did turn blue and it was in danger of falling off. Oh. Um, so the cat doctors, amongst the other Thai surgeons, only their finest cat doctors were brought in on a case like that, um, went to work and sucked out various things. And presumably enough of it, so he, he recovered. But uh, it, it took a year for it to uh, come back to anything functional. Did he manage to restore it with dick lifts? And dick lifts? Is there such a thing? You didn't do that prison dick lifts? Well, you were housed in all these... Oh, uh, well, you don't mean the... You know, the old wives' tale whereby if you don't use it you're going to lose it and oh, old right, cons no. tell new oncoming prisoners you know if you, yeah, by if the you time you yeah, get yeah, out yeah, it's not yeah, going to work so what prisoners do is um, get a wet cloth yeah. go in the shower get an erection put the wet cloth on the erection and then do reps oh do reps. right yeah, yeah the old love muscle exercise that tendon that's uh, attached there um, had been uh, a couple of porn stars had that cut to uh, draw it out you know, because underneath the scrotum, yeah. there's a bit more going on there that can be drawn out. Oh. So for professional reasons, 
They had that tendon cut and and longer, really. Longer, yeah. Um, But the uh, downside is that, uh, yeah, it uh, won't hold its ground unless it's uh, fully Viagra'd. Um, uh, I mean, you remember Johnny Watt? He was that was stage name of John C. Holmes, the seventies porn star. He had the most massive schlong in the business. Mm. It was it had to be ten inches or something like that. Uh, but um, you know he was a pretty heavy drinker and drug user and whatnot. Died of AIDS in the end. But um, he was he never managed a, a proper erection. Uh, mm. It was just too much blood to be pumped through there. Could he at least so, play the uh, piano with it? Um. I think chopsticks or uh, <laughs> clear de lune or something like that. Odin D, air on a G string. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a guy who was famous. See what your questions inspire. Okay. Please put all of your questions for episode 10 in the comments section below this video. And we'll be heading off into. Uh, out of Asia and off into Scandinavia, the United States, and beyond again. Please subscribe to David's channel. A lot of you have subscribed to OG Shadow's channel. And it's just jumped from no subscribers to 50,000. Let's get David's channel going viral like that. The, the link is in the description box below this video. As are links to the eight preceding podcasts, some of which are three hours long, 20 plus hours of endless content. You could just lock yourself in all weekend long and listen to David's mellifluous voice. So the link is down there as are links to David's books, uh, my socials and everything else we've got going on that you're presently interested in in the channel. Huge thank you to all of the new subs. It's it's just, it's and just, pleasure to be here as always. And if people have any questions, they can contact me through the link in all of that stuff. The subscription logo is in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. It is free to subscribe. Huge thank you to all the people who donated on PayPal, Patreon, just giving subscribe star. All those links are down there as well. To enable us to produce such quality podcasts in this studio with our sound engineer, Joe, and our cameraman, James. Yes, there's stalwart troopers always here. Follow you anywhere. Into battle, Sean. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, take care, people. Adios. See you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.